Everyone feels the need to express their opinion on a matter, to state their moral correctness of their position on a particular issue. Companies that have nothing to do with a particular cause, they post their thoughts on homepages of their website. Social media users certainly align their profiles, they align their feeds with a certain cause. Some may put the Ukrainian flag as their backdrop or use their profile to show support for various social agendas, but in reality, this is actually nothing new, is it? Right? The first virtue signaling OGs of the day were those who were the Pharisees during Jesus' day. Right? They loved to flaunt their virtue before others in order to be seen. Whenever they would give to the poor, they loved to sound the trumpet in the streets that they had given, that they are so righteous and holy and godly. Surely, if anybody is going to be virtuous, I mean, wouldn't it not, would it not be the Pharisees? But not so fast. Didn't Jesus actually call the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? That they looked clean on the outside, but they were quite dirty on the inside. Hundreds of years before that, the Lord even said through the prophet Isaiah of Israel that the people honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. As writer Amy Joseph helpfully reminds us, the scriptures invite us to be much more concerned with virtue living than virtue signaling. So clearly this is nothing new. But with everyone flaunting some form of virtue, how do you know a Christian whenever you see one? Better yet, how do Christians live a strange life in a secular, virtue-signaling world? Those are some of the things that we're going to think about in our text this afternoon. So if you would turn with me to 1 Peter, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in this passage today, Peter describes what marks out Christians from the rest of the world. That in a world with its own virtue system, Christians aren't going to be the same. They're going to be strange. They're going to be strange. In fact, this is exactly how Peter identified these Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the early 60s during the reign of Nero. He calls them exiles. He calls them strangers. He does so precisely because they are different. They are distinct from the rest of the world. God chose them out of the world to belong to him. He caused them to be born again in Christ. He secured their living hope and their future salvation through Jesus' resurrection. And those who get to celebrate such a glorious hope are called to live in such a way that actually demonstrates that their hope is not found in this world, but is actually found in Christ in his return. But until he comes, how do Christians live strange and obedient lives in a world that is not their home? How do Christians live strange and obedient lives in a world that is not their home? That's what we're looking at today. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. So chapter 1, starting in verse 13, go all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. So if you would, follow along with me in 1 Peter. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, 
you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. I think the main idea of this text is simple and clear. There's a lot of words in what we just read, a lot of theology in what we just read, but I think the point is clear, that a hope-filled people are a holy, fearful, loving, and hungry people. A hope-filled people are a holy, fearful, loving, and hungry people. And in our text today, what Peter is doing is he is showing us how really our future grace that we're going to receive when Christ returns, how that motivates present godliness. Future grace motivates present godliness. And he gives us four ways that we're to set our hope on our salvation to come. We're to be holy, we're to be fearful, we're to be loving, and we're to be hungry. And those four commands really serve as our four points, that a hope-filled people are going to be a holy people in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. We're going to be a holy people. Secondly, we're going to be a fearful people, chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Thirdly, we're going to be a loving people, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And we're going to be a hungry people, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And so we're going to follow along just in that order. We, a hope-filled people are a holy people, a fearful people, a loving people, and a hungry people. Those four things are going to guide us throughout this sermon. So point number one, let's first look at a holy people there in verses 13 to 16. Peter begins this section with the word, therefore. You can see it right there. It's the first word in verse 13. And that's important because we have to remember how we got here. What is the therefore, therefore, right, as the popular phrase goes. Peter didn't begin his letter with commands. 
But what did he do in the first 12 verses of this letter but celebrate the salvation that God has secured for us through the death and resurrection of his own son? That's what all, all of has happened, everything has happened before now has all been about celebration versus exhortation, right? He didn't begin with the law, he began with God's grace. In the Christian life, the truth of the gospel always drives godliness. There is a reason why Peter began with grace before he got to these commands during the letter in this kind of body of his letter. If we mix up that order, we become idolaters and we practice a different religion altogether. We don't obey to earn salvation. Rather, it's because of our salvation that we obey. The fuel for a godly life is the grace of God. That is what Peter is communicating in putting the therefore in verse 13 rather than in verse 1. The fuel for a godly life is the grace of God. So he begins by reminding them that God is what God has done for them by explaining what we're called to do for him. And because grace fuels our godliness, he commands them to set their hope on that grace. We see that right there in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember from last week when he speaks about grace right here, he's talking about our future salvation whenever Jesus returns. That's, what he's, that's how he's using grace right here. And so Peter is calling us to trust God with our future because our future salvation in Christ motivates us to live for Christ. For instance, if you're running a race and you don't know where the finish line is, it's going to be hard for you to stay motivated to keep your pace up to finish that race. But if you know where the finish line is at, what are you going to do? You're going to set your pace. You've got that motivation, right? That finish line is motivating you in order to set the pace to be able to finish the race. The finish line motivates us to persevere. And it's similar for the Christian. When our future hope is fixed upon Christ, it's going to change what we long for and what we live for even today. Future grace motivates present godliness. So how do we set our hope on this salvation? Peter Peter gives us two ways right here in this point. The first one is that we've got to be prepared. We have to be prepared. In verse 13, Peter says that we get prepared with minds ready for action, or literally to gird up the loins of your minds and to be sober-minded. Now that image of girding up your loins really describes someone that's going into action or is about to get up and run. And so back in the ancient day, they would take their tunic, they would take their garment, they would tuck it into their belt so that they wouldn't be tripping over their robe, over their garment, right? They were getting ready to start running. They were getting ready for action, right? It's an expression that's used of Israel during the Passover in Egypt. God's going to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. To do so, they've got to get ready to go because when God passes over them to execute judgment on the Egyptians, they're going to get left behind if they're not ready to go. And so they've got to gird up their loins, literally is the word that's described of them right there. They've got to be prepared for this salvation. Peter is saying that we get ready for our salvation 
by preparing our minds for it. With new life comes a new way of thinking, and it takes effort to keep our minds sober, right? We think about drunkenness. When someone is drunk, it distorts and desensitizes them to reality, right? We've all seen probably drunk people in here. Um, it all it desensitizes them to reality. Peter's concern is that we not let our minds get drunk on worldly things that are, going to, that are going to desensitize us to God's grace, to that salvation, so that we end up living drunk lives, so to speak, for the things of this world, because we place our hope on the things of this world. Now think about how easily it is to, it, how easy it is to do this in our digital Babylon today. Our lives are bombarded by thinking that is going to make us drunk and distracted from our living hope in Christ. The digital world will inhabit, right, that we inhabit, is going to dull our appetite for our salvation just by its incessant output of information and late-breaking news. The constant marketing of what's convenient and comfortable, the consistent push to express your authentic self and the lie that we need to fulfill our earthly desires. Friends, we all have to be honest about how the internet and social media shapes our thinking and our habits. It creates an environment. When you're on it all week long, it creates an environment by which it indoctrinates you to a way of being in the world, a way of being where your hope is not set on your salvation, but you are living for the things of this world, for the cares and the concerns of this world. If our minds are set to the tune of the world's propaganda, Peter is saying we're not ready. We're not ready for the salvation to come. And like Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, we don't know when that hour is going to happen. We don't know when he's coming back, the exact hour of it. And so we're not setting our hope fully on grace. Yet as one author put it, God's grace is the only power strong enough to counteract a system designed to pull your life out of shape, not by force, but by the gentle pull of disastrous desires. So if we're going to live rightly, we've got to think differently. If we're going to live rightly, we've got to think differently. With new, life, with new life in Christ comes a new way of thinking. A new way of thinking about God, a new way of thinking about yourself, a new way of thinking about others, a new way of thinking about just salvation, redemption, which we all considered last week in that sermon as we celebrated the salvation that God has secured for us in Christ. With salvation comes preparation. Just like a bride is not going to show up to her wedding day in cut-off jean shorts and a tank top, we're not going to be showing up to our wedding day unprepared and unready. But not only that, right thinking must lead to right living. So we need to be prepared. The other thing, the second thing that Peter tells us right here is we need to be holy. Right thinking is going to lead to right living. It ought to. And so we need to be holy. Peter says in verse, th- in, in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. And so because God has given us new birth, we are now who? What is our identity? What does he say right there in verse 14? We are obedient children. That's who we are. 
and we obey our Father by being holy as he is holy. There are really two sides to holiness. Two sides to holiness. The first side is that we, have to, we are set apart from sin. And then the second side is that we are devoted to God. That's what holiness is. It's being set apart from sin and devoted to God and his ways. That's what holiness is getting at. Peter says in verse 14 that we're set apart from sin by not being conformed to the desires of our former ignorance. One of the privileges that I have as, a, as one of your pastors is that I get to hear about your life before Christ. Those times whenever you were living in your former ignorance, like we all were before Christ. And some of the ways that you describe your former ignorance is that of sexual morality. It's arrogance. It's pride. Seeking to make a name for yourself through position and prosperity. Living for the approval of others. Maybe it was laziness. Using unkind, corrupting speech, or even a a life that is marked by anger and resentment. That's often how you've described your former ignorance, your life before Christ. But brothers and sisters, have those sins of your past become a pattern for your life today? Are there vestiges from your past that you are still living with that have actually become a pattern in your life today? Have you forgotten who you are as obedient children of God? Have you forgotten your identity. When we follow ignorant and empty ways, we are not valuing God's grace, but those things that are empty and are ignorant. But you know that you value grace when your hope fuels your holiness, when you devote your thoughts, your desires, and your actions to God's ways. And in verse 15, Peter says that we're to be holy in all of our conduct Because of the one who called us is holy. Only those who've been given new life can pattern their own lives off of the one who actually gave them that life. And so Peter is saying that God's character is now the pattern of your very lives. And where else do we see the pattern of his perfect character but in who? His perfect son. The author of Hebrews tells us that the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. Look to his son. Look to Christ. Do you want to know the character of God? Look to Christ. Look to his character. The glory of Christ's character and teaching motivates us to pattern pattern our lives after him rather than the empty and ignorant way of the world. Who wouldn't want their life to reflect Christ's godliness? Who would not want their life To reflect Jesus in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who would not want that life to be characterized by such a life? Who would rather have ignorance and emptiness than the character of Christ replicated in their life? Answer, nobody. We shouldn't. We should not want emptiness and ignorance. There's a reason why Peter... It's using such negative language to talk about your former life before Christ so that you understand who you are, what you've been purchased from, so that you will never want to go back to that trash heap again because of what Christ has done to redeem you from it. Instead, you want to be who you are. You want to be who you are 
in Christ, we will live a holy life in so much as it is patterned off of the glorious holiness of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, is your life patterned off of the character of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Is it patterned off of him? Well, a hope-filled people will be a holy people. And that holiness is going to express itself in fear, which brings us to our second point. We are also, a hope-filled people is a fearful people. We see this in verses 17 to 21. When we think about setting our hope on the grace to be brought to us, the first word that may not come to mind, I think, is probably fear, right? That's not the first thing that we think of when we think about setting our hope on the grace to be brought to us. I mean, certainly from a worldly perspective, fear seems incompatible with words like hope and love. From the world's perspective, fearing someone doesn't seem fruitful. That just seems strange, maybe even stupid. But Peter says that it's precisely a fear of God that actually reveals where your hope is. It's the fear of God that reveals where your hope is. It's precisely this fear of God that protects us from living like our hope is set upon the things of this world. It's precisely this fear of God that makes us strange in a world that is characterized by the fear of man. And so Peter calls Christians in verse 17 to conduct yourselves in reverence or fear during your time living as strangers. Fear ought to characterize the Christian's life. And the motivation for conducting ourselves in reverence for our Heavenly Father is that he judges impartially according to each one's work, which is amazing because you have the word father and impartial judge all in the same verse. Fascinating. Those two things can go together. The one that we pray to his father is also our judge on that final day. He will not play favorites. He's impartial. He will judge everyone according to the same standard and the same evidence. What do our deeds reveal about our hearts? What do our deeds reveal about our hearts? It will either reveal that our faith and hope are rightly placed in God or something altogether that is, is completely different than God. Peter's saying that God's character ought to affect our conduct. And our conduct will reveal what we fear. And what we fear is going to reveal what we value and what we love. That's what our fear reveals. It reveals what you value and what you love. For example, if we live in such a way that our hope is placed in the approval of others, then we're not fearing God. We're fearing man. We're valuing man's opinion of us more than God's view of us. If we live in anxiety because we fear not getting married, maybe losing a spouse, not having a child, or getting terminally sick, then we're valuing life, we're valuing children, we're valuing a spouse, we're valuing marriage over our heavenly Father. It's not wrong to value those things. That's not what he's saying. But when you value those things over the Father, that's the problem, and it reveals what you fear. But rather than fearing these things, we ought to fear living in ways that betray our lack of satisfaction in God, as it's been said. For the Christian, fear that characterizes our conduct is not a fear that's afraid of God, but a fear that adores God, a fear that loves God, a fear that stands in awe of God 
in his holiness and in his glory. Like the child who seeks to obey their parent. They do so not because they're terrified of them, but because they love their parent. They want to please their parents. A fear that pleases God is one that is not terrified of him as some tyrant, but instead is a fear that is in love with him as they are with the Father. Theologian John Murray once said that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. If we do not rightly fear God, we will not live a holy life. And Peter knows that nothing is going to squelch godliness quicker than presuming upon God's grace in salvation. Thinking that because God has saved me, well then somehow now I can just live however I want. And Peter knows this, right? But Peter actually says the opposite. It's actually God's grace in salvation that produces this kind of life that fears God and honors him with their life. And he shows us the reason why we do this in verses 18 to 21. Look at what produces fear in you in verses 18 to 21. He says that you conduct yourselves in reverence. Why? Because you are redeemed from your empty way of life. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You fear God because he paid the redemption price to pay for your sin, to buy you out of the slave market of sin that you were living in, that empty way of life. He redeemed you from that so that you might now fear God. You might adore God. You might live in awe of God and love him above all other things. The price that he paid for you came at infinite cost to him. No amount of silver, no amount of gold, no other currency could pay the redemption price to redeem you out of your slavery in sin. But only one could. Only one could. And that was the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you to buy you out of that slave market and to set you free to live for God. Because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God, it took an infinite price to permanently redeem us from our empty way of life. This redemption frees us from lesser fears and it cultivates a holy fear of God within us. And because of this redemption, we are now able to conduct ourselves in humble adoration in fear of God throughout the rest of our lives. The cross of Christ is what produces this fear. It's what produces a holy life. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that will shrink your fear of man and expand your fear of God more than marveling at God's work for you in the cross of Christ. It's this redemption that puts a holy fear of God in you, that desires to honor him, with our very lives, rather than to turn his grace into an excuse to sin, just like Jude talks about in his letter. When Christ's sacrifice is precious to you, it's going to compel you to live a holy life, to flee sexual morality, to resist being overcome by the fear of rejection or a fear of death or a fear of failure. It will put all earthly treasures that you are tempted to pursue 
in perspective because of the infinite treasure of the gospel. It will protect you from becoming friends of the world, like Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 1, and propel you to live a life as a stranger in a world that is not your home. A fearful life is one that is produced by the cross of Christ. We can't set our hope on a future grace if we do not marvel at God's grace to us in the cross of Christ. So brothers and sisters, is the blood of Christ precious to you? It is to God, but is it precious to you? We will fear what we love. What does your fear say about what you love? If you've not experienced this redemption in Christ, recognize that the fear of God is actually going to bring dread and terror to you on that final day. It ought to bring dread and terror to you right now because God is not simply a a father to you. He is rather your judge. It ought to bring fear and terror. But the good news for us is that the perfect life that God requires of you that you cannot live and that you are not living right now has actually been lived and paid for through the perfect record of Jesus Christ. All of us will fall short of making payment for our sin and satisfying God's wrath against us because of our sin. But it doesn't have to be that way for you. It doesn't have to be that way today. This is why Christ came. He came to redeem you from your empty way of life that led to destruction, to give you everlasting life in him so that now your fear of God is not one of terror, but is one of adoration because of what God has done for you through his son. It's this kind of work that will cause you to put your faith and hope in God, as Peter says in verse 21. So repent of your empty way of life and trust in Christ to be the perfect record to pay for your sin so that you could be reconciled to God and fear him in humble adoration. Well, we set our hope on this grace to be brought to us by living as a holy people and a fearful people, and thirdly, a loving people. Last two points are the two shortest points. Thirdly, a loving people. So a hope-filled people are loving people. Verses 22 to 25. The third command that Peter gives these chosen exiles is found at the end of verse 22. It's found at the end of verse 22. He says, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Peter gives this command because living under the pressure of Roman rule in a world that was not their home, what would it do to these exiles? It would lead them not to love one another. Under the constant pressure of Rome and the world, it would lead them not to love from a pure heart, but to pursue self-love. Not to love constantly, but only when it benefits them. And so Peter exhorts them to love one another from a pure heart constantly. Because pressure from non-Christian neighbors could lead them to become impatient, could lead them to become irritable, cold, and cynical. And we understand how this is, right? The pressures and demands at work spill over into relationships in the church, leading us to be demanding rather than patient with one another. It's the same within your own homes. The anger and the cynicism that is just all over the place online leads us to have a spirit of harshness and disunity that we bring into the church. Like, we know how tempting that this is. 
for the world to affect us in such a way that we are not a church that is marked by love. Every church is tempted in this way. But the way that the church is attractive in a self-serving world is by our constant pure-hearted love for one another. A love where we lay down our interests to serve others, where we joyfully serve in ways that are not going to receive praise from people and that don't highlight our giftedness. There will be times when you will serve in a way in which you would say, you know what, I'm really not gifted with the kids, but I'll serve in the kids. Why? Because you're not receiving praise. You want to glorify God in that. You want to love your brothers and sisters so that they can hear the word of God. That's why you do that. A church where our members aren't suffering under the epidemic of isolation and loneliness that the world suffers from because we're regularly giving loving encouragement in person, through text messages, or even through calls, where we're lovingly seeking to encourage and incorporate others into our lives who are different from us, who don't have the same personality as us. That's how we love one another. Brothers and sisters, this is what setting your hope on the grace to be brought to us looks like. This is the kind of love that is strange in a world that is bent on self-love. It's this love that causes the world's ears to perk up and listen to the gospel because it is otherworldly. It's not normal. It is supernatural. Peter says as much in verses 23 to 25. It's only this gospel that produces this kind of love. And that's what Peter is talking about in verses 23 to 25, where he quotes Isaiah 40, which we read just a minute ago from Krista. He quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8, where God comforts his people in exile in Babylon by declaring that he is going to save them. But how do they know it's going to happen? You can take my word to the bank. Why? Because my word endures forever. That's the whole point of what God is saying in Isaiah 40. I'm going to save you. You can proclaim this good news on the rooftops, and you can trust me, because my word is not like flowers. And guess what? It's not like you people. It endures forever. It is forever. Peter is saying that it's only this enduring word of the gospel that can produce a love that endures in your life when it's hard to love people. Christians can love one another from a pure heart constantly because we've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you like a seed that was planted in the ground that produces a crop. The gospel is God's eternal seed that is planted upon our hearts that produces eternal love toward one another that is not going to wither away under worldly pressure. It's this gospel that we proclaim that is a picture of perfect love. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, not while we were righteous, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's this good news that gives new life and a new way of loving. Only this gospel can produce a world-defying love that lost sinners long for. They long for this love. Well, it's also this word of the gospel that is necessary for our growth in godliness, which brings us to our final point, point number four. 
a hungry people. So a hope-filled people are going to be a hungry people. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So if we're to love one another from a pure heart constantly, then there's got to be certain attitudes that we need to do away with in our lives in order for us to love one another. Peter says, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Godly love does not jive with chapter 2, verse 1. It doesn't jive with those kinds of attitudes in our lives. You can't love someone if you hate them, or deceive them, or envy them, or slander them. You don't love someone when you tell, one, tell them one thing and actually do another thing, hypocrisy. When we set our hope on these things, we're not setting our hope on our salvation. We're setting our hope on destruction. These attitudes are opposed to the holy life that God has called us to. And so Peter says that we need to rid ourselves of them. Literally, we need to take them off like a garment. You think of a ratty, nasty old shirt that you just need to get out of your wardrobe and pitch. That's what we need to do with these sins and these sinful attitudes. We've got to take it off, rid ourselves of it, and put it away into the trash. How do you do that? That brings us to the final command, chapter 2, verse 2. Look at, look at verse 2 right there. Peter says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. When we desire and hunger and crave for God's word, then these sinful attitudes are going to wither from us. They're going to be less prevalent in your life. Why? Because you no longer crave to be angry. You no longer desire to be lustful. You no longer desire to be malicious. Why? Because you're desiring something better that is an expulsive power that's going to drive out all that lesser desire of those sinful desires. We rid ourselves of sinful desires that will destroy us by desiring, craving, and hungering for the word of God that is going to sustain us. Like a newborn infant with milk, Christians are dependent on God's word for spiritual growth. So you think about the youth and younger generation in here. All of you who are younger, right? Those of you that are youth, though you might be few, it is extremely important to understand this point. It's important to look at what content you are consuming or you will consume at some point in your life. If you're mostly consuming the word of the world through friends and social media, then do not be surprised if your desires, if your hungers, your cravings look like the rest of the world because that's the, desi- that's the content that you're consuming. And what's going to come out are those same kinds of desires. The more that we consume it, the more that we, will cre- that we will crave it and be shaped by it. Just like a newborn baby that craves milk for their life and growth, we develop a craving for God's word by feeding ourselves on his word because it's God's word that we taste what is good. It's his word where we taste that he is good. The goal of eating on God's word is that we, is that we will grow up into our salvation. We will grow up into spiritual maturity. Throughout these commands, you may have noticed that when Peter applies them, he uses, he's speaking to the church in the plural. He says, yourselves, over and over and over again. You can look right there in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, yourselves. Chapter 1, verse 22, yourselves. Chapter 1, verse 17, yourselves. 
over and over and over again, he's talking about how you need other people to do these commands. We don't have to hunger for God's word alone because we have the help of one another to help us do that, to help foster that craving and develop that craving. And so, brothers and sisters, make it a priority to be here to hear the preaching of God's word week in and week out. Make that a priority. Make it a priority, ladies, for you to be at that small group Bible study at Cassie Lucas' house on Thursday at 7 p.m., studying the book of Titus. Make it a priority to get God's word in your life. If you're struggling to get in the word, consider meeting with another member throughout the week where you prepare to hear the, the sermon that I'm about to preach on. Maybe you read over that text. Meet with another member to go through that text, and you're reading over it over, over, and over again throughout the week with that person. Use God's word to encourage one another. I mean, I had, a, I had a text this week even from a member telling me how they were able to use God's word from last week's sermon as they talked to another believer who's a coworker of theirs. That's very simple. You can take everything that you've heard here and you can go and you can apply that by encouraging others with that word. When we do this as a church, we are, given, we are giving each other what tastes good. You're not giving each other bad food. You're giving each other good food. And so we want to give one another a taste in our mouths for the word of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we will be a loving church in so much as we are a hungry church. We will grow in spiritual maturity as a church as we desire God's word. Pray that we would be a church that craves God's word, not only here today, but even with you throughout the week as you study the word of God. And as we do, we set our hope upon his grace in salvation. Because a hope-filled people are a holy people. They are a fearful people. They are a loving people. And they are a hungry people. This is who we are as Ozark Baptist Church. Let's pray together.